Good morning, guys. Glad you are here. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, we're going to be in uh, beginning in verse 25, and I know that looks like <clears throat> we're skipping over a chunk. We are, but we'll come back to it next week. Um, the way that 7 is organized, uh, I just don't like the way Paul organized it. So um, we're trying to, the whole chapter is three sermons on marriage and singleness and divorce. And so he has a verse, or a couple of verses in 8 and 9, that um, after I, what I preached last week about sexuality and marriage, he speaks to the unmarried for a verse or two. Then he goes to a big section to those who are married, but considering divorce because one spouse is a Christian and one is not. Uh, and then he returns to uh, the unmarried, or really the engaged. And so we're going to deal with all the unmarried in one chunk and then go back to uh, deal with the divorce part next week. So that's what will be next week. So I'm not skipping anything. I'm just rearranging it a little bit. So we're in uh, chapter 7, verse uh, 25. And I will say, uh, before we begin, just as last week we, uh, we spoke about marriage, and, uh, and we speak about marriage a lot. We have marriage boot camps. My hope is that um, those who are unmarried or uh, have once been married or may never choose to be married... Um, that you don't check out during those times, but that you listen because God's Word is God's Word, and it's been given for all of us, not just parts of it to learn from, but to learn from uh, all of it uh, for all of us. So I'd expect uh, the uh, single people to pay attention when we talk about marriage, but I also expect the married people to pay attention when we talk about those who are unmarried. And you might find, and you will find, that God speaks to you in different ways. Um, if it is God's Word, it is what brings life, and so uh, I'm going to pray that that happens, so don't believe that, well, this is a good sermon for someone else to hear who might be single. Uh, it's a good sermon for you to hear, and um, it may also be a good sermon for someone you know to hear later. So, we, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25, uh, I'm going to read all the way to 38, and then drop 39 and 40 off until next week. So, uh, that's how we roll. Here we go, verse 25 says this, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in the view of the present distress, it is, a, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Well, do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this to your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be like that, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries is betrothed 
his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. This is God's word. Let me just pray. Father God, thank you for your word. It cuts very deep. I pray that it will speak to us where we each need to be spoken to, whether that be words of conviction or words of comfort and encouragement. But change us, Father. Let us think differently because your word has changed us today. In the blood of your son we pray. Amen. Well, uh, culture, uh, you may or may not know or may not agree, but I believe culture connects our identities with our marital statuses in a very unhealthy way. Um, Historically, and I mean ancient, but also somewhat not so ancient, historically culture has always celebrated what we would probably call today traditional marriage and family because um, they were uh, very much about legacy. And they emphasized legacy. We talk about legacy occasionally, but uh, that was part of their culture and their, their uh, upbringing. And in the eyes of the Jew, marriage was uh, considered a sacred duty. It wasn't just a sacred opportunity, uh, but it was a sacred duty. And getting married and having children, hopefully many children, uh, were essential in their mind to ensuring a heritage for future generations. And so... Uh, getting married and having a family, a robust family, was the ideal. That was the goal. That was the hope for everyone. And any other option than that was a disappointing plan B. Now, our culture today, the culture we live in, contemporary culture, couldn't be any more different, really. Um, and maybe that's just the Northwest, uh, but it's certainly um, where we uh, live and breathe these days. The value of marriage and its emphasis has changed dramatically. Um, a survey done recently in 2010 found that uh, several thousand, uh, there were several thousand Americans who were surveyed, and they found that nearly four in ten said that marriage was becoming obsolete. And 44% of those who are 18 to 20, so your newly graduated um, high school seniors, so to speak, first couple years of college, said it was obsolete. Not that it was becoming, but that it was. And today, uh, barely half of U.S. adults um, are married. So less than half are, are married, or barely half are married, which is the lowest percentage ever in our history. Now, many are getting married, and those who do are typically getting married later in life, uh, trying to establish themselves and get their independence, uh, if you will, or become financially stable, which is taking longer and longer as the years go on, and many more are just choosing to live together and kind of play house. And so the statistics of divorce and marriage are sometimes confusing because of that. But singleness, without doubt, in our culture has become idolized. Um, It has become something to pursue, and marriage has become redefined to accommodate that idea of singleness. So we can be single and yet kind of married in some weird sort of way. Now, Marriage by our culture, and I, I, not necessarily majority, but a certainly growing minority, has become viewed as restrictive to personal freedom, as a hindrance to independence. You often hear young people, I was a high school teacher for many years, and the older kids would talk about marriage with a little bit of negativity and always say, well, I want to make sure I travel, I want to do X, Y, Z before I get married, I want to have some fun implying that once they get married, all fun stopped and all enjoyment of life ceased. So, yeah, man. Now, I am available for counseling. Um, now, 
They believe, uh, many singles in particular, unmarried, um, believe that fulfillment is no longer in marriage like it once was. It's in self-satisfaction. And so, with no one to support or to care for, they're free to indulge in whatever makes them happy. And that's a good thing, a joyful thing, a wonderful thing, is what they're saying. So, to combat this shift, the church has attacked it and, and really tried to elevate the value of marriage. It said marriage is ideal, marriage is God's gift, marriage is all these things, and so... Excuse me, you got sermons preached, you got books written, you got conferences held, you have uh, <clears throat> political statements made, and Christians now are, are being called by their pastors and others to find fulfillment in being a husband and a wife and a mom and a dad and having a family, and it's been strongly emphasized. And as they listen to their pastors, men and women now are centering their lives on their families. Um, they are centering them on their homes, on their date nights, on their children, on their vacations, on everything. It's becoming core to who they are. And they are finding not satisfaction or fulfillment in themselves, but in making someone else happy. And ensuring someone else is happy, that be their children or their wife. And while there's absolutely nothing wrong and something very good about elevating God's plan for the family and and God's plan for marriage, and celebrating those kinds of relationships, I've often wondered what the impact that elevation and that holding that up as a a huge celebratory thing is having on the singles that are in the church. Because it seems like, I know for those who who, who love their families, which I hope is all of us, it seems like we have traded one idolatry for another. And we are idolizing the family too much, perhaps. Paul addresses both these people, the unmarried and the married, who are both, in, his, in Corinth, looking for a, a more spiritual alternative to what they have. They uh, are both denying that the situation they're in is actually the best situation, spiritually or otherwise. They are both dreaming about the moment they don't have as opposed to embracing the moment that they actually have, whether they're married or unmarried. And so he's responding to these questions like, should I stay married? Should I get married? Those kinds of things. That's what chapter 7 is really about. And so both those people, if they're unmarried or married, if they're looking outside of their situation, what they're doing is not just trying to find a better situation for happiness. They're actually denying something about God. Specifically, they're denying that God is wise enough to know what is best for them or best for anyone. They're denying that God is good, good enough to give me His best, or loving enough to give me His best, or that God is powerful enough to make it best, that it's actually in His control. And so, what you have here is uh, people that are, um, what I'm going to call experiencing a double idolatry in our world. So you have, in our culture, um, in particular, single people idolizing singleness, And then there's a few that are beginning to idolize marriage as a savior to get out of their singleness. But at the same time, you've got married people who are idolizing marriage and family. And then a few within that who are miserable going, man, singleness is so awesome. Wish I could get out of this situation, out of this responsibility, out of this broken, miserable marriage that I find myself in. 
that will be the cure to all of my pain. I need more pleasure, and this is restricting that. And the single people are like, I want to not be lonely anymore, and that will fix that. So you have all kinds of weird idolatry going round and round, and it's all taking us away from the foundation of our identity, which is not in our marital status, but in our redemptive status. So having addressed the married people directly, Paul now is addressing the unmarried or betrothed, we'll call the engaged people who are about to be married. And what he he clarifies at the beginning, he says, what I'm going to tell you is not a command. not saying don't get married because he is going to give us his preference of singleness. Paul prefers singleness. He says it's better. That being said, the majority of people who have ever been born in our culture have generally gotten married. But he says, I prefer singleness, so he's not giving a command, but he is giving what we're going to call a divinely inspired opinion. Still God's word. And he is still, Paul says, very trustworthy. So his opinion matters. So he's going to put forward this idea or a case for the goodness of singleness. Now, Maybe I should say the goodness of Christian singleness, but the goodness of singleness. And one of the primary things he says of why this is preferable is what he calls the present distress in verse 26. He says, considering the present distress that we find ourselves in, it would be good for you to remain as you are, remain unmarried, so you don't have to experience any more worldly troubles. Now, it's unclear, or there's some disagreement about exactly what Paul means. Many believe that Paul is talking about the suffering that's going to come with the second coming of Jesus Christ, and that Paul expected Jesus to show up very quickly, which if you read in his letters, he did expect him very soon. I don't believe that actually Paul is talking about that as much as he means something much more maybe general in terms of attitude and much more immediate. See, the Corinthian Christians experience life the way we do. It hasn't changed much. And what I mean is that life is hard. Life feels like a meat grinder at times. You are getting through it, but you are getting through it in a way that's sometimes painful uh, or not pleasurable. But what gets us through? What gets you through that meat grinder that is life, whether it be a minor irritation or a major devastation? It's the hope that we have. We have a hope. We suffer differently. We experience life differently. And the hope we have is a promise. A covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God who says that we have a rest-filled, peace-filled, suffering-free future. That it's coming. That we have a place that is home, that this is not our home. But that we do, the reality is, We live out our lives still in this broken world. See, the king reigns. Jesus reigns. Jesus is on his throne. Jesus is in control. But his kingdom and the fully restored kingdom is not realized yet in this place. So we have a hope, just like Paul does, that the phrase he really uses is that our time is short. This is not all there is. We are hopefully going to see Jesus Christ return today. That'd be awesome, right? This afternoon, call it quits, it's over, we're with Jesus, I don't have to go to work on Monday, right? Awesome. 
Time is short. But during that time, knowing time is short, knowing we have a future, knowing that this is a speed bump to eternity, if you will, we still engage with the world. We still have to you know, live here. And he talks about things that are interesting. He says all this stuff is passing away, even marriage. Marriage is going to be gone. And until then, knowing everything's passing away, we re- live radically different lives according to radically different values. Because we know that every situation, every place, everything is temporary. So we do marry as we live here. We do remain single. We celebrate. He lists a bunch. We suffer. We buy. We sell. Always with a view of eternity. We should not be making any decisions without a view of eternity guiding us. Because that will dictate how we spend our money. That will dictate what we celebrate and how we suffer. That hope of a future place changes everything and it especially changes how we view marriage. Now, I've said this before and I'll say it again and I think it's an awesome reminder. When you are with Jesus, right? The world has burned up. The new heavens and new earth have come down and we are living with Jesus and we've been with Him for 70 million billion years, right? Long time. We're all going to look back and we'll remember that speck, that 70-year-ish speck of life that we had on earth. And we're going to look at the worst sufferings that we experienced. And we have, many of us have experienced some horrible things. But the worst sufferings imaginable are going to seem like stub on our toe. And the greatest joys, right? The financial success, just the amazing accomplishments that people do, the families we raise, all these things, we're still going to look back at those awesome experiences we had in that 70-year speck of life and go, that was about as exciting as a first-grade checkers championship when compared with being with Jesus for 70 million years. So our perspective needs to stay there, and we have to fight that, because without an eternal perspective, our perceptions, the decisions, especially about marriage, whether we marry or not, and who we marry, will be very superficial and self-serving. In fact, everything will be. Paul wants us to live very deliberate lives on earth with whatever number of moments we have and we don't know how many we have. He does not want us and God does not want us to spend our time imagining a happier moment. What it would be like to be out of this marriage? What it would be like to be married and to let that vision govern every way, everything you're doing? There is a real danger in using marriage or singleness as a functional Savior to replace Jesus. Believing that if I just gather this marriage, all my woes would be gone. Or if I get into a marriage, all my woes will be resolved. We do that all the time. We think, well, if I had just a little more money, but a different spouse, different job, different home, different whatever, extra this, minus this, we always think, I would be better if. That's your Savior, is what's happening. Paul argues that people, specifically speaking to unmarried, should remain as they are. They should remain where they are. 
And when he says remain, the issue is not staying where you are. But he believes that all Christians should trust and enjoy God wherever God has assigned you this moment. This moment. You don't know what the next moment is. So for those who are dissatisfied with their marriage, but I think especially those who are single and dissatisfied with that, I know that you find it hard to believe in this moment that this is God's will for your life. And I'm going to tell you something that is um, intended to be an encouragement, but I don't know if it's going to feel like that at first. You have a theological issue. A deeply theological issue that's leading you towards unbelief. And the issue of theology is, namely, your problem isn't wanting to be married or not wanting to be married or whatever. It's that you are starting to deny who God actually is. So the question is, who do you believe God is? Because either God knows you, right? Omniscient, all-knowing God. Either the God of the universe knows you and your circumstances, past, present, future, and even possible, or He doesn't. Either God is perfectly good, perfectly wise, and perfectly in control, or He is not. Either God is these things, right? Perfectly loving, perfectly wise. These are not just actions He takes. These are attributes of who He is. Like, He can't decide one day to be unjust or unloving. God is love. God is wise. He cannot be unwise. So belief in God, at least God of the Bible, will give you that. Because you may believe in God, but it just may not be the God of the Bible. Belief in God of the Bible means that we believe that God can never be and will never be less loving or less good toward me. That He is always perfectly good toward me. That He is always perfectly loving toward me. That He is always perfectly in control of me and my situation. That He never ever shortchanges His children but that He always, as a loving, powerful father, 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 gives them what is best always. Always. Now, I realize, first of all, that's a biblical truth. I realize that's difficult to believe at times, but we have to get to the point where we believe that I am single or I am married because God is so abundantly wise and powerful and good to me that this is best for me. That's a very different way to look at it. Although we might want to say, well, God is wanting to change me so much, but He's withholding. I don't know if that's happening, but what I can say is that because God is so abundantly wise and so powerful and so good to me, I have to believe that this is His best for me. So for those of you who are dissatisfied in your marriage right now, or those who are dissatisfied in their singleness, can you believe that? Because to deny that is 
pretty significant, pretty major. To believe that God isn't out for my best, God isn't powerful enough to give me my best, God doesn't know what's best. Okay, so is your God evil? Is your God weak? Is your God unloving? Is he dumb? Because that's not the God of the Bible. I believe there is a godness to singleness. Just as there's a godness to marriage. It's not accidental. It's God intended. It's not even your fault, right? No, I'm single because I'm just, you know, screwing everything up. No. There's plenty of screw-ups that have gotten married. Okay? I counsel lots of them. (laughs) I am one myself. I still can't figure out how I got married. But, by God's grace, it happened. There is a godness to singleness, and so because of that, there must be a goodness to singleness. Right? If there's not a godness to singleness, sure, singleness stinks. But so does marriage, if it's not God-ordained and God-controlled and God-inspired and God-moved. Paul says that uh, getting married or remaining single is not sinful. That's not the point. Neither one is sinful. These aren't issues of sin. He does say in verse 38, though, that he who gets married to the person he's betrothed to, hey, he does great, but he who doesn't, even better. He does have a preference, unapologetically. And at the heart of the present or the preference, like what he's saying, he has a concern. It's out of love. He's giving his judgment. He's like, look, um, there is a reality of an additional load that marriage brings to an individual. And his desire is for the individual and couples really to be free from that load. Free from the extra responsibilities. And here's what he says in verse 32. I want you to be free from anxiety. You'll notice though there's anxiety on both sides. He says the unmarried man is still anxious. He's anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about two things. About worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman, the engaged woman, is anxious about things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this to your benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So, marriage does carry extra responsibilities. Amen? Yeah. All the single people are like, really? Yeah, it does. Those who are married have their interests divided. And that's not necessarily a negative bad thing. It's just a reality. Paul's not saying it's sinfully divided. He's not saying that it's horrible. He's just saying this is the way it is. The single person, those who is unmarried for whatever reason, does not have a covenant with someone to which they have material Physical, emotional, and even sexual obligations. Duties. Talked about last week. They're free from those. Because by command of God, the husband must concern himself with cultivating his wife. That's not like additional. That is required. And a wife is required by command to love and to help her husband. This is the design of God in the nature of covenant commitment. But see, a single person only has to concern themselves with pleasing the Lord in the moment of singleness. 
And this is, quite frankly, often an easier and better and more effective way to serve the Lord. Even if it's temporary. And it's not the result of some superpower that singleness brings. It is the simple, realistic freedom that comes with being independent in an individual in that way. Not to the point of idolatry, but just the reality of it. Now, in putting forward singleness as a good option, Paul is trying to um, express his overarching desire for everyone, single or not, which is that everyone should have a single-minded service to God. An undivided, as in, not after the world, but devotion to the Lord. And we have to be careful, I think, because this isn't just preached to those who are single. What I mean is that he doesn't intend to restrain singles or to not have them be married so that he can create this like single group of single army that's a missionary army that's the only one who can do work for the Lord and the only one who can serve the Lord and the only one who can do all these things. And the married people are like, well, I'm glad the single people can do that, but I've got other things to have to busy myself with. That's not the truth. What he's trying to do is to urge all Christians as they approach a decision to be married or to remain unmarried to consider pursuing what prayerfully you believe will be the best way to empower you to serve Christ free from anxiety or distraction. Now, For some people, and for some callings, marriage is going to be a hindrance to your mission. And marriage will be a hindrance to your relationship with God. I think of a guy like Paul. But Paul was going around, planting churches, getting nearly killed every city he went, drowning, thrown in jail, his wife would have not been real happy with him. Or maybe even helpful to him. And he wouldn't have been very helpful to her. So there are some callings, however long a season they are, where it may be better. Now, Peter was single too. I'm sorry, Peter was married. And Peter stayed in Jerusalem for the most part. So, there are those who I believe, for some people, marriage will actually enhance and empower that mission. That the number one question I think that we should be asking when couples are coming together is not, um, who should I marry, or man, I really like that person, should I get married, but more of a question of, what is going to help enhance my relationship with the Lord and empower me for greater mission? Because the reality is the first, when I, I counsel lots of couples, young couples who want to get married, older couples who have been married, and I'll ask them, like, why are you guys married? And the only correct answer, quite frankly, the only reason to get married, among many others, but the primary, I should say, is that we can glorify God better together than we could ever apart. That sounds like, kind of like, Oh, that sounds so romantic. Right? But the truth is, we're talking about like, all right, 
called to plant a church. I would have never planted a church with anybody but Kaylin Ford. I didn't know that at the time, quite frankly. When we got married, that was not in the cards. And when I first felt the desire, the call to plant a church, she was very much against it. God changed her heart, not me. I didn't talk her into it. And she's been an incredible partner with me. An incredible help to me. So the reality is, sometimes singleness is what enhances your mission and what enhances your relationship with God, and sometimes it's the other. They're both gifts, and they both can be abused. But people can get married and remain single for the wrong reasons. You are free, to, free in Christ to do whatever you wish. But our questions should really be about, well, pursuing something with a God-centered motivation. Because typically, that's not the first thing that's coming up when you are pursuing marriage. When you're pursuing marriage, you're asking more questions about, well, do I like this person? Are they attractive? Um, do we have a lot of things in common? Will we get along? Do we communicate the same? Where are we living? What are all these practical pieces as opposed to how could God use us together instead of apart? Now, both marriage and singleness are a gift. But strangely, or maybe all too often, the church um, has often talked about the gift of singleness. And the church has usually interpreted the gift of singleness as describing those individuals who have absolutely no desire to be married. Like they just like, I have no desire to ever be married, and I don't want to be close to anybody. That's a gift, right? And typically, whenever you describe it that way, most people, young and old, go, I must not have that gift, right? That, that can't be me because I just can't experience life like that or think of life like that. I definitely don't have that gift. But what happens is singleness becomes like this kind of curse to avoid. Like, well, you're single? That sucks. Like, hopefully you get on plan A, because plan A is way better, right? And plan B is just a disappointing experience, and that's not the case at all. Paige Benton is a great writer. She wrote back in um, the late 90s. Um, she wrote an article about her own singleness. I think her sister had gotten married two weeks uh, after or before, sorry, she had written this. She was reflecting on her singleness. And she listed some of the twisted explanations she'd gotten from people about singleness. Like why she was single. Things like, well, when you're satisfied in God alone, you won't be alone. Wow. Or, you're too picky. Or, before you can marry someone wonderful, God has to make you someone wonderful. Now, I'm glad God didn't wait to make me someone wonderful. Um, He's still working on that. But here's what the reality is. All of these explanations have absolutely nothing to do with the person being single and who we believe them to be, and everything in terms of who we believe God to be. And what I mean is, like, is marriage really a reward for faithfulness? Or is God's sovereignty really hindered by uh, my personality? Like, am I so picky that I have the power to resist God, and, and, and if He wants me to marry, no, I'm sorry, Lord, that's just not going to be it. Really? I have that much control and power over it? God's sovereignty just you know bows before my pickiness? 
Or do we really believe that it's connected to my sanctification? Where, you know, at some point I'll be Jesus enough like that He will bring someone to me. This is not true. And those are incredibly insensitive statements, incredibly unbiblical. And a lot of people have heard those. You may have told people those. But here's the truth is that these attitudes have made the gift of singleness feel like plan B or feel like a less than experience, whether you're old or young. And this is not what single men like Paul and Jesus intended. Instead, what I believe God wants us to do is embrace singleness as something to steward, not just endure and tolerate. And I believe He wants us to steward it until God decides to give you a spouse or to bring you home to Himself, who is all of our spouses. But in order to elevate singleness, I feel like we need to correct some false truths and preach some biblical ones. So I have uh, 34 points to tell you. I actually don't. I only have, I have much fewer, like maybe 10, and that just like, you set them up, right? In high school, you're like, yeah, I've got 27. They're like, oh no, five. I can handle five. So I set you up. You fell for a good job. Number one, if you're single, or if you know someone who's single, please know that singleness is not your identity. Singleness is not your identity. Your identity is not found in your marital status, but in your redemptive status. And fulfillment is not found in some earth-shattering romance with another person. I don't care what Twilight tells you. Okay? It is found in your one earth-shattering, heaven-sent relationship with Jesus Christ. You are a single Christian, not a Christian single. And there's a difference. Number two, singleness is not a death sentence of loneliness. You are not alone. But guess what? You can easily choose to live like that. You are made in the image of God and we are all relational creatures. And we are all commanded to love all people. To love our neighbors, our enemies, and especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are not commanded all to marry. In other words, our relational options are not limited to marriage. And so do not make marriage your solution or savior to the loneliness that you feel. Because it's not. It will disappoint. And that is unfair to even put that burden on another person. Because they are not Jesus and they will not satisfy and they will only disappoint. And then you'll hate marriage that much more and people that much more. So if you're lonely, if you're super lonely, get some stinking friends. And if you don't have friends, guess what? You've got a church full of people who would love to spend time with you. And don't listen to the accuser, the liar, tell you anything different. No, people don't like me because X, Y, Z, that's a lie from the enemy. My guess is that you're not willing to take that step in to build a relationship. Not a death sentence of loneliness. It's also not a license for self-absorption. This is the people that idolize singleness. You can, guess what, waste your money, you can waste your time, you can waste your energy, you can waste your gifts, just like you can waste your singleness on yourself. Don't do that. Singleness is also not always permanent. 
You may desire to marry, but here's the truth. Right now, God does not desire that for you. And that's okay. The question, though, is for those who may desire to be married, have that vision in, in your life, and you, you see this is where it's going to be headed, that's not a bad thing until it becomes to govern all your decision-making. It's okay to have that desire, but my question for you is, how are you preparing for that future spouse that God may give you? I think of boot camps and, and things like that, or, or spending time with married people and just learning what it means to be a godly husband or, or a godly wife and seeing what marriages look like. How are you preparing right now? He may or may not, I'm not sure, but if that's a desire of your heart, well, just assume that it's not permanent. may not happen tomorrow, but it may happen someday. You don't want to Training, if you will, the day before. Number five, singleness is not punishment, it's sanctifying. What's that mean? Well, it means this. God's goal for all of us, married or single, is guess what? To look more like Jesus. And so He will use whatever tool or situation and every tool and situation He can to accomplish this in a person. And guess what? He has to use different tools for us all. Suffering, celebration, poverty, prosperity, marriage, singleness. It can be painful. It can also be incredibly joyful, but it is always the right tool for the job. The job is not to get you married. The job is not to get you successful. The job is not to make you happy. The job is to make you look more like Jesus. Singleness, more positives, is an opportunity to serve. The single person, young and old, right? My son um, is 12 years old, or he will be in a month. He does slides. Why don't my 12-year-old does slides? No one else would step up. But he's single, and he's got lots of time. (laughs) Right? He's a young man, and I tell him, he's single, he's preparing. But right now... He and obviously others older than him have an incredible amount of opportunity to give their time and their talent and their treasure that a married person doesn't have anymore. Now, as a single person, there's very little that hinders you from being on mission for God. And there are those single people that have not been married, and then there are the people, let's be honest, the couples who are newly married And then there are the couples who have been married a long time and your kids are gone. You got time. You know you got time. And the saddest thing I can see, saddest thing, one of the things that really moves my heart is that when you have the mother of five serving everywhere, as the young couple comes in and sips their coffee and enjoys fellowship, as she serves because she's been serving all week at home, you have a lot of opportunity, and I am blown away sometimes, especially by single guys. Like, I just, I just don't have time to do it. You don't even know what time. It, you have no idea how much time you have right now. And when you get married, still, you have this experience like, you know what? Let's just go on this trip to so on and so forth. Let's do this. This will be fun this weekend. You put one, two, five, ten kids in there, that all ends, okay? Coming to church on a Sunday, guess what? That takes planning. Okay, we got to be here at 9. 
All right, we will start at 8.05 preparing to get in the car to go to church. Okay? It takes time. You single people, and I know there's not a ton in our church. There's a lot at Snohomish, and there's, but there's couples. You've got all the time in the world. We've got plenty of places for you to serve. It's an opportunity now. You won't always have that opportunity. You won't always have the opportunity to go off to Honduras and help build a home. Most of the guys went there. There were a couple single. Most of them were family guys. Sacrificed a lot to have to go. They shouldn't be sacrificed. you got all the time. Singleness is also a very important part of God's church. And what I mean by that is that unless for whatever reason we have like a singles ministry, single people seem like they've been like they're sitting at the like, little kid's table, you know, at Thanksgiving. We don't need that kind of ministry in order to make you feel important. But we do need a church that says, look, I love single people. We need single people. You need them in your road groups. You need them at Bible studies. We need to spend time with you. Why? Because we're old, crusty, married people. We want to be reminded what joy looks like again, okay? Actually, no, but the truth is, there's stuff that you share There's stuff that you enjoy, but there's also learning that we can go back and forth with. You're part of the church. You're part of our family. It's not just a bunch of married people. Just because we have a marriage boot camp or a married sermon series doesn't mean it's only about marriage. We need singleness. You're part of the church. Last couple, singleness is also important to God, and that's the only thing I'm going to keep saying. I want you to refuse to believe that it's not. It's not plan B. It's God's plan A for you right now. And to believe uh, anything else is not just disappointment with God's plan, it's disappointment with God and a rejection of who He is. It's much more significant than that. Singleness, lastly, is also a sermon. Married people preach a different sermon, but a single person can preach all kinds of sermons to friends, to family, to the world, even to themselves. And the sermon says this, I am so sold out to Jesus that... My hope is not in family, it's not in having a marriage, it's in Jesus. He may bless me with that someday, but right now, I'm not putting my hope in that idol. It's in Jesus Christ alone. You can preach that sermon. You can also preach a woe is me misery sermon that makes a huge idol out of singleness. And one day, I'll be married and free. One day, I will have true love like they had in Princess Bride and be free of all these things, okay? That's not necessarily the case. Your hope is in Jesus now. Your spouse is Jesus now. Enjoy it. Embrace it. Preach it. Finally, it's a gift entrusted to you. If you're married, you've been given a person that you are to steward. You will present her, him, back to God at some point. You'll say, okay, how'd you do? If you are single, you've been given singleness to steward. Don't waste it. He has given you a gift, so don't wait for the gift that He hasn't given you. Paul ends his comments to the unmarried, reminding them of the goodness of marriage, just in case his uh, singleness rant is taken the wrong way. It's not only a good thing to be married, it is a great thing for those who cannot exercise self-control. And he says, I'll just read back in verse 8 and 9, it's really a similar to what he says at the end of the chapter that I already read. He said, To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. 
I've told young people that. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. And all I'll say is this. I think as the final verses indicate, in 35 and, and 36, I believe, actually all the way to 38, he's speaking, when he speaks to unmarried, he's speaking largely to people who are engaged, who are thinking about being married, not people who are just trying to find somebody in the moment. In other words, there's a big difference between just wanting to marry someone and wanting to marry a particular someone. One takes time and another just takes a signature. It's not difficult to get married. Anyone these days can get married. Okay, It's not hard. But his main concern is for the individual and the church to ensure they're purely pursuing marriage. So if you are dating right now, And there are old and young people who are dating. If you are dating right now, I would encourage you in several ways. Number one, pursue pursue oneness and not just attraction. In other words, look at the tree. Hey, nice tree. But look at the fruit of Christ. That's what you're looking for. Not just attraction, oneness. Secondly, pursue love, not just romance. And what I mean by that, spend enough time to go beyond the romance stage so you can see that person for the sinner that they are. You need to see the dirt. You need to see the brokenness. You need to let them see yours. Pursue faith, not just religion. Just because your date goes to church does not mean they are a disciple of Christ. You've got to dig. You've got to find out. You've got to know, is this person really equally yoked, right? Right? Do they have a 